Collateral. The unknown, the unexplored, the weird, the beautiful, the different. Arts and popular culture. Physical science. Philosophy and history. Society and education. Drift bottles and rubber ducks. Hang on, what? Welcome to the first episode of Collateral, not just a science podcast. I'm Elise Mole and I'm the show's executive producer. Collateral is a platform for new and emerging science communicators to tell you stories about science, art, history, culture and more, as well as additional content to supplement stories in Lateral magazine. Each episode of Collateral will follow the same theme as the current edition of the mag, and as I'm sure you've already read that from beginning to end, you'll know that today's episode is all about villains. We've all heard of the great heroes of science. Alexander Fleming discovering penicillin, Mary Curie developing the theory of radioactivity, Charles Darwin formulating his theory of natural selection, and of course the whole community of scientists and researchers whose work may not achieve rock star status, but whose contributions to science are nevertheless vital. But when it comes to the villains of science, it's not necessarily the scientists themselves who fill that role. It's often the tyrants in charge of them, or the people who put their discoveries into practice, or the diseases that are studied in the lab, or the environmental destruction that scientists work to undo. These are the villains of today's episode. Coming up on the show, a story about the man behind the atomic bomb project, the case for anti-heroes, an interview with Lateral Magazine's cover artist, and a profile of an unpopular culture, gonorrhea. But first, a harrowing field story in a tropical paradise. We're all familiar with the archetypal mad scientist who blows up the lab after manically mixing reagents, and sci-fi is full of fictional tales of backyard experiments gone wrong. But in real life, a scientist's failings are far less glamorous. This segment is aptly called That Sinking Feeling because it's exactly how you might feel when your laptop dies with all your data in it or when you realise you have to run the whole experiment again. This is the segment where we share bizarre, harrowing and unexpected experiences from researcher field trials. In our first story, produced by Sunsony McDonnell, we hear about a coral reef researcher called Kristen Brown who put her body on the line for science in a beautiful tropical paradise. So my name is Kristen Brown and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. I've been studying the ecology and physiology of coral reef ecosystems. I really enjoy being outdoors and in the ocean and so with this research, I, I get to do that every day, basically. Kristen has been part of the XL Catlin Seaview Survey. Kristen visited 10 countries with the XL Catlin, but there is one trip that sticks in her mind as particularly trialling. So we were in um, Chagos, the Chagos Archipelago, which is in the middle of the Indian Ocean. It's a British Indian Ocean territory. It's very, very remote. Um, it's just underneath the Maldives. And actually, if you wanted to travel there, you probably couldn't because it's a military base. So the only people that really go there are people who are in the military and scientists. On our second day of the expedition in Chagos, uh, the weather was, became pretty bad. 
the conditions were the complete opposite to what most people would think of when they think about scuba diving on coral reefs. The sea was really dark, the sky was gray, it was windy and raining. Every dive is pretty different and you never know what you're gonna see underwater. So you always kind of wanna get down there and see, see what is happening. We got blown off the reef and we were just kind of in the blue water, just near the reef, but, but you couldn't see the bottom. The idea was that we were gonna put our dive gear on in the water because it's a little bit easier than having to stand up in a moving boat with all the equipment in the boat. As the team passed um, my gear in, it ended up slipping out of their hands and it kind of splashed into the water in front of me. It wasn't properly inflated and had lots of heavy gear attached to it. I dove down to try and grab it. My wetsuit was keeping me from going down more than a few meters and it was sinking really fast. So I told my buddy and he immediately went down and, and started chasing my dive gear. He kept diving deeper and deeper into the blue, probably around 30 or 40 meters, um, trying to intercept the dive gear in the water column. I couldn't really do anything, so I was watching him as he was going down, and, and while I was on the surface, all of a sudden we began to get surrounded by sharks. It was a large school of silver-tipped reef sharks that came at us from every angle. So we were just in the middle of the blue and just sharks coming from the left, from the right, up from below. They were circling us and darting in and out. Um, it's possible that they were just curious because we were in a very remote place where not that many humans go scuba diving, or maybe they were you know, a bit more aggressive because our behavior was really weird with plummeting scuba gear and us plummeting after it. This was an abnormal amount of sharks, more than I was used to seeing as I had just you know, completed five or six expeditions to countries around Southeast Asia. And so this was kind of like, whoa, this is a lot of sharks. My buddy chased the dive gear till it was no longer safe to chase it anymore. You're kind of trained that if sharks come to come close to you, that you kind of spray this, the bubbles from your air into their face and it might deter them if they were coming too close. So he was clutching that with his hand as the shark kept coming in and out and in and out, looking at him. Kind of aggressive behavior, I would say. This whole time I was just watching him as he slowly came back up, um, holding his air source and the shark just circling, a few sharks circling me at the top and then this one shark darting in and out. It was quite scary actually. Unfortunately, Kristen was forced to cut her losses and quite frankly, I would have been out of there much earlier. So it was my first set of scuba gear that I bought during my undergraduate studies and now it's sitting somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean, who knows how deep. Despite the sharks, the storm, and the loss of her equipment, the mission continued as planned. Anyone who works in the ocean knows that nothing ever goes to plan and that you have to be flexible and, you know, you lose things all the time. So all of the imagery and data from the mission is freely available online, so on the Global Reef Record, and you can virtually dive some of the locations that we visited on Google Oceans. Given the region, sustained a two-year-long coral bleaching event about one month after we visited. The data set we collected provides a pretty extensive and valuable baseline of the coral reef condition prior to that bleaching disturbance. That was Kristen Brown you just heard. That story was produced by Sunsini McDonnell. 
For information on the XL Catlin survey, go to globalreefrecord.org. Kristen now dives for the Coral Triangle Reef Survey, funded by Vulcan and led by Dr Emma Kennedy at the University of Queensland's Global Change Institute. Do you have a bizarre field experience you want to share on the show? We'd love to hear from you. Email podcast at lateralmag.com or tweet us at collateralpod. Now we're going to travel back in time to Soviet Russia in the early 1900s. In the weeks after the Bolshevik Revolution, on November 7, 1917, the new communist government was desperate to protect their fragile grip on power. And the way they thought to do this was to combat counter-revolutionary activities. Revolutionary tribunals began convicting enemies of the revolution. Punishment included forced labour. It was around 1918 when the first Gulag concentration camps were born. The Gulag became the main economic engine for the Soviet Union. A group of scientists and engineers detained in the camps struck a fortuitous deal to help the party develop weapons for the war that included work on the atomic bomb project in return for warmer, better living conditions. It's no stretch to imagine the archetypal mad scientist in this scene gleefully rubbing his hands together at the thought of mass destruction. (laughs) But you might be surprised to learn that the atomic bomb project was actually led by a bespectacled high-ranking government official named Lavrenti Beria, a man who by all accounts was one of the most evil villains in Soviet history and one of the few men who could scare Joseph Stalin. He was the chief of the secret police and is well known for administering the vast expansion of the Gulag labour camps. Beria has such a terrible reputation that he really deserves. He was this awful, awful man. Um, He was so bad that the fellow communists, people like Stalin and so on, wouldn't let their daughters travel around with him in the car. That's Thomas Hornigold. I'm a postgraduate student at the University of Oxford. I'm a freelance science writer. And I host a podcast, Physical Attraction, which explains issues in science and technology. Thomas has written about the scientists in the Soviet Union who were detained in the Sharasky prison in the early 1900s. I dwell on the horrors of this man, Beria, to point out that when Stalin puts him in personal charge of the bomb project, that's sending a message to the scientists. You know, we we haven't put a scientist in charge of this. We've not put a normal government official in charge of this. We've put the head of the secret police in charge of this, so you better get it right and do what you're told. Even in his personal life, Beria displayed a number of villainous traits. Records show that teenage girls were routinely picked up from the streets of Moscow and brought to his mansion, where he would ply them with wine and rape them in his soundproof office. He had long lists of all of the people who he had arrested. And if they had a sister or a wife or a mother, he would say, if you want me to free your father, your husband, your brother, your son, then, well, I mean, I probably don't need to explain to the audience that he was a serial serial predator. Um, In many cases, the people involved had already been executed. According to his biographer, Beria's sexual appetite led to him contracting syphilis during the war. Nonetheless, Beria's cruelty made him the perfect person to oversee the scientists and engineers detained in the Shirasky prison. 
the Soviet bomb project doesn't kick into gear until after the Americans detonate their bomb. Uh, they detonate their bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, um, to end the Second World War. And Stalin instantly is horrified by this. He says that the balance has been thrown out of order and that there will be some sort of horrendous nuclear war and the Soviet Union will be destroyed uh, by the Americans if they don't correct this nuclear supremacy. On the 29th of August 1949, the Soviet Union secretly conducted its first successful weapons test. Stalin gave the atomic bomb project absolute priority and the project was completed in under five years. Beria is talking to Stalin and Stalin actually tells him, you know, <laughs> Stalin, the man responsible for all of the horrors of the Soviet Union in this era, tells Beria to lay off the scientists and says, uh, oh, leave them be, we can always shoot them later. In March 1953, after three decades under Stalin and nine million deaths from internal repression alone, the Soviet dictator finally died. Beria was then promoted to first deputy premier, but his enemies turned on him. He had such a terrible reputation as a person that actually after uh, Stalin's death, he was the lead successor who was most likely to take over the Soviet Union. And essentially the rest of the Politburo, Stalin's cabinet, pretty much ganged up against him because they all thought, gosh, if Beria gets power, he'll have us all executed. Um, you know, they all hated him. And so in a, in a coup that was led by uh, Khrushchev, it's actually very well uh, done, if a little historically inaccurately, in the new Armando Iannucci film, The Death of Stalin, which everyone should go see. It's very funny. Stalin's dead. He's dead. Stalin is dead! Ironically, Beria was arrested on charges of treason, terrorism and counter-revolutionary actions. He was sentenced to death on the 23rd of December 1953. When the death sentence was given, Beria begged for mercy and collapsed to the floor, wailing and crying. They had Beria uh, shot in one of the cells of his own prison. When the war is over, and especially after Stalin dies and Beria is killed, uh, the Soviet Union undergoes this huge uh, process of de-Stalinization. A lot of the scientists in the Sharasky, once the Sharasky was shut down, carried on going into the same office. The only difference was that they could go home at the end of the day. So a lot of them did okay out of it. You know, they 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 form these associations, they form these partnerships, and they were able to carry on doing what they had been doing. Now, you might say that the price of having to work for an oppressive government, um, being taken away from home, being held under fear of death for five, six, seven, eight years, was was too much to pay for that. On the other hand, the scientists involved probably would have told you that it was that or fighting at the front or that or slave labour in the gulag and they knew which one they preferred. So, there were these scientists working on atomic bombs and other weapons for years on end. Had they drunk the Kool-Aid and become evil villains themselves? So we start with this idea that um, science is driven by rare geniuses who come along and see things that other people don't. 
that's a misleading idea, but it's one that's deeply ingrained in how we think about science, I think, in the popular imagination. And then you also have the idea of scientists creating weapons of war. And I think that together feeds into this mad scientist stereotype. Thomas says we don't have mad scientists. We only have mad circumstances. It's just that scientists sometimes take the brunt of the blame when things go wrong. I think it's damaging to think that science is done by individuals because it it discards all of the credit that should belong to the community. Um, It's damaging to think that only geniuses can advance science because it prevents people who feel like they don't fit that archetype from getting into the field. Um, I think it's damaging because we rely on incredibly smart people to come along and save us as a society when in actual fact what we need is for more cooperation and more people working towards the same goals. To learn more about the scientists in the Sharaski prison, check out Thomas Hornigold's feature in the latest issue of Lateral Magazine at lateralmag.com. You can also find Thomas's podcast, Physical Attraction, at physicspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Unpopular culture. Now it's time for the first instalment of our regular segment, Unpopular Culture, where we take a look at cultures that are either underappreciated or downright notorious. Under the microscope today is a true villain of the bacterial world, inflicting widespread human suffering and, more recently, achieving antibacterial resistance in a dubious legacy going back millennia. Producer Rhys McGowan has the scoop. Come with me on a journey to the microbial realm as we look at a truly foul culture. I'm speaking, of course, about gonorrhea. Gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted bacterial infection that has plagued us, well, obviously not me, but it's plagued other people, for millennia. Perhaps the earliest written account of the disease comes from the medical manuscripts of Chinese Emperor Huangti, dated 2600 BC. Then there's the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, in which God dictates to Moses and Aaron the hygiene regulations for men with urethral discharge. But it was the Greek physician Galen, who lived from the year 130 to 200 AD, who gave us the word gonorrhea from the Greek words gonos, meaning semen, and rhea, to flow. He probably believed, erroneously, that the discharge often experienced by men with the disease was the involuntary loss of semen. Now, I'm not sure where the women were in all this, but you have to assume they were suffering their fair share of festy bits along with the fellas. Regardless, it's estimated there are up to 106 million new cases of gonorrhea each year worldwide. It can infect the genital tract of both men and women, as well as the rectum, eyes, throat and joints, and if left untreated it can cause infertility. And symptoms can range from absolutely nothing at all, through to pain in the pelvis for women or in the testes for men, burning upon urination, bleeding between menstrual cycles, the aforementioned genital discharge, basically things nobody wants to experience, ever. Nicknames for the infection include the clap, which originated in 1378 and was derived from Les Clapiers, a district in Paris where prostitutes lived, as well as the drip, and the dose. It's called the dose, apparently, because if you catch it early enough, and by that I mean if it's diagnosed early enough, it can be cured with a single dose of antibiotics. Although that could be about to change. 
As if scientists didn't already have enough on their plates, what with tackling climate change and curing cancer and cleaning up the oceans and reversing habitat loss and stopping the Holocene extinction and making iPhones even cooler, we're now living in the era of the gonorrhea superbug, or as I like to call it, super gonorrhea. Except it's less like Superman and more like super scary. You see, the latest report from the National Alert System for Critical Antimicrobial Resistance shows that a strain of gonorrhea that's impervious to the antibiotic azithromycin almost tripled in the six months to September 2017. There were 342 alerts of the strain collected by the early warning system from 65 laboratories nationwide, although the majority came from New South Wales with 120 alerts and Victoria with 160. Go Victoria! The good news is, azithromycin-resistant gonorrhea can still be treated with the antibiotic keftriaxone, at least for now, but if those pesky little bacteria develop further resistance, we might find ourselves living in some dystopian future full of painful, oozing genitals and, ultimately, mass infertility. And that's enough to make for one truly unpopular culture. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a rather incriminating search history I have to go and clear. That was written and produced by Reese McGowan. And further developments came to light after that piece was recorded and filed. Public Health England, a government agency in the UK, has reported that a male patient has been found to have the first confirmed case of gonorrhea that showed high level resistance to both azithromycin and keftriaxone. So humanity may have just crept a little closer to the gonorrhea apocalypse. Scary stuff. Anti-heroes have long been a staple of pop culture, but it wasn't until the last decade or so that they started to become immensely popular, thanks to memorable characters like Tony Soprano and Walter White. But why does the anti-hero narrative work? If we met someone like Walter White in real life, chances are we wouldn't want to hang around long enough to hear their story. The anti-hero has an unusual psychological makeup. There's also something unusual happening in our brains when we watch these characters in action. In this story, Sylvie Van Wall tries to figure out exactly what that is. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skylar. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Ah, anti-heroes. They're the characters we love to hate. Or is that hate to love? So anti-heroes can range from just people that are almost villains all the way to lovable rogue or, you know, someone who's a bit gritty or a bit broody. In a really broad sense, an anti-hero is basically any character who embodies the traits that a hero lacks. So literally the antithesis of a hero. The anti-hero, psychologically speaking, is said to be made up of three key traits otherwise known as the dark triad. The dark triad of traits are essentially narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism. Again, we get pulled in by the charisma of the anti-hero. We get pulled in by their Machiavellian tendencies. So you're like, how are they going to get out of this? But I think the beauty of anti-hero narratives is that we are able to indulge in that kind of cathartic darker side without it 
moving into real life because you wouldn't want to meet an anti-hero in real life. At worst, they'd be toxic. At best, they'd be tiring. To explain this anti-hero phenomenon, I'm speaking to PhD student Joey Black from the University of Melbourne, who's deep into her own studies about the anti-hero and the lesser-seen anti-heroine. So my research is actually primarily about the anti-heroine, but it's almost impossible to study her without reading substantially about the anti-hero. And you come across quite a few uh, anti-hero texts where there's a section or maybe a chapter on the the woman anti-hero, the anti-heroine, and they'll essentially be like, there's not that many and not a lot we can do about it. Maybe it's because of this, but how can we really know? If you did see a woman, Walter White, would she be an anti-heroine or would she be a hated villain? Because I was thinking about Game of Thrones and I, one of my favourite anti-heroes on Game of Thrones is Jamie, Jamie Lannister. I think it's crazy because you can see him being like actively involved in incest with his sister and he's, you know, he's completely loyal to his family and he commits heinous offences, but I still really like him. I still really want him to succeed. But Cersei, who is literally his twin, you know, she's a, she is essentially a double of him, but, but she's a woman. I feel sympathetic towards Cersei, but I do not want her to succeed. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Power is power. So according to Joey, Jamie is an anti-hero and Cersei is a villain. Is the patriarchy to blame or is there more to it? Some anti-heroes are, in my opinion, just villains where you have access to their point of view. So um, I think towards the end of... Breaking Bad, you know, you get to the point where it's just a bad person, but you only have access to them. So therefore, they are your protagonist. So therefore, they're your anti-hero. When Breaking Bad started, everyone was like, well, we're basically seeing Hal from Malcolm in the Middle, but he's doing these bad things. And because we know Brian Cranston, it allows us to feel more open and more engaged in this anti-hero narrative. And you feel more inclined to keep going on with the anti-hero. So that's that's an... Uh, extra textual, paratextual connection that you might not think, but it does work inside you. So our own frame of reference that's formed from things like point of view and expectations is absolutely key to understanding and empathising with the anti-hero. Now let's back up a little and look at how our brains are cued into anti-hero narratives through something called effective disposition theory. Effective disposition theory is basically the notion that when you engage with the narrative, you build up notions of story schema. And they may be little little narrative cues, little narrative traits, tropes, like we were saying before, which signal what kind of story you're in. And, you know, a lot of them are kind of linked to genre. So, you know, you know you're in a rom-com when, you know, the opening credits roll. When you hear the fun music playing and... And, you know, your protagonist probably, like, drops her coffee or something. And then you're like, oh, she's so adorable. We must be in a rom-com. We have high-level moral processing and low-level moral processing. So higher-level is more active. It's something you you sort of actively do on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, you might be confronted with a dilemma and you'll take the time to stop and think, is this right? Is this wrong? And then you've got your lower-level moral processing, which is very instinctive. And... Anti-hero narratives allow us to switch off our higher level moral processing 
and just go with the flow with the low level processing. And I think we've all felt it, you know, when you're watching a TV show or you're reading a book and maybe, or a movie, watching a movie, and maybe the protagonist uh, has the bad guy in his clutches and you think to yourself, kill him, just kill him. It's, it, it'll feel so good if you do. What, what that is, that's your low level moral processing, sort of just saying that even though your higher level processing knows that it's wrong to kill someone, your lower level processing is it'll feel right because they've done bad things. There have, just, there have been studies undertaken where they have gotten people to watch anti-hero narratives and sometimes they've disguised them. Um, and I think, from memory, um, in that study, they literally said, "You're what?" Like they told the audience, "You're watching an anti-hero narrative." Like it was that basic. They they triggered that in them by outright saying, "This is an anti-hero story." And people at the end were more inclined to like the protagonist and root for the protagonist if they know and they've been told that they're an anti-hero. So, in summary. We're all a little bit of an asshole, and we like seeing people who are assholes on TV because it gives us a bit of what's called fictional relief. So there's that sense of, I know I can't do this in real life, and I know that we can't act this way in real life, so therefore I want to watch a narrative where someone gets to do the things that I know I can't. That was Joey Black speaking to producer Sylvie Van Wall. Up next, we meet Will Tempest, the artist behind this month's Lateral magazine cover. Collateral producer Linda Goodman asked him what makes a good villain. They're definitely going to be iconic, kind of visually. The ones that I really enjoy the most are kind of well-rounded characters as well. You can almost empathise with them, I suppose, on some level. They're not just some absolute force of evil. A lot of things, yeah, they've got to have kind of a good goal for them to be driving towards. And what are some of your favourite or most iconic villains? The one that kind of jumps out from my childhood especially is sort of Darth Vader. And he's kind of got that really iconic look and uh, kind of, he has that redemptive moment at the end of Return of the Jedi had a little bit of a look at your work and yeah it's very cool yeah i've been really enjoying doing some stuff for the, for the magazine it's been a lot of fun to work on how long did it take you to design i did one for the waves issue which was about plastic in the ocean that one was a lot faster because i immediately had the idea so that was kind of a couple of days whereas with the villains one i was there was a lot more of a process of kind of sending sketches off and the art director sort of checking them over and seeing which works best for the format and so yeah this one took a little bit longer but i'm happy with what we what we settled on definitely i think it works really well that was will tempest speaking with linda goodman you can see Will's work in the latest issue of Lateral Magazine. Go to lateralmag.com or find him on Instagram at willt01 and on Tumblr at willtempest.tumblr.com. And that's a wrap for our inaugural episode of Collateral. We hope you enjoyed our Villains episode. If you did, be sure to follow us on Twitter and tell all your friends about it. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a review or thumbs up. The theme of our next episode will be maps. 
If you have any comments or questions or you want to pitch us a story, we'd love to hear from you. Email podcast at lateralmag.com or find us on Twitter at CollateralPod. Thank you to the podcast team, Sunsini McDonnell and Sarah Matthews, and our contributors, Sylvie Van Wall, Reese McGowan and Linda Goodman. Thanks also to Lateral Magazine's editor, Tessa Evans, and the entire editorial team for their support. And finally, thanks to Melbourne Uni. This show wouldn't have been possible without their support. See you next time. Mm-hmm.